Luckily for us, the Apostle Paul saw fit when writing to Rome to spend 90% of his time speaking about theology and only about 10% of his time speaking about the application thereof. And I personally am convinced that the reason that he was comfortable with doing that was because he knew that when people that are full of the Holy Spirit read the inspired words of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit impresses upon them in real time the manner into which it is to be applied. (laughs) So, luckily... As we do this review, that means I get to review everything in Romans up to chapter 13, which is nothing less than the nuts and the bolts of the gospel itself. And so once again, this morning, Paul writes to the church at Rome and he says that he is not ashamed, but that instead he is eagerly obligated to the gospel. Not one or the other, not that he is eager for the gospel alone, but not obligated, and not that he is obligated to the gospel without being eager, but there is a reality of both responsibility and joy that go hand in hand in the things of Jesus Christ. For this is a gospel that is the very power of God unto salvation. It is the wrath of God revealed against men. Man, you will never see anything in the world that is simultaneously so beautiful and so fearful as the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the righteousness of God revealed when He makes propitiation for men, for women, for boys and girls, for me and for you, ransoming back His people, purchasing our eternal souls with the lifeblood of Jesus Christ. That the one who has been eternally just may also be the justifier. Paul says that Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him as something more than belief. And we look at the miracles of Scripture. We look at... Israel stuck between Pharaoh's chariots and the point of the spear and the sea before him. And we look at God, look down at a body of water and reckon it dry ground. And we say glory. We we look, as we did this last Wednesday night once again, at Christ take a little boy's lunch and reckon it enough to feed tens of thousands And we say glory, but the greatest thing that God has ever reckoned as more than it was, was when he saw fit to reckon the gift of faith as equating to the righteousness of a holy God. It is the power of God on display. Faith credited to us as righteousness so that having been justified through the gift of faith, we may rejoice, we may boast in the very hope that God has given us for we were dead, born in the image of Adam from dust and to dust. And in Christ we live because in Christ we died. We know who we are. 
For the saints are those who by baptism of the Spirit died with Christ, were buried with Christ, and are risen with Christ by the glory of the Father to walk in the newness of life, a profound identity, life from death, God calling into existence that which did not exist. All of this by the power of His own Spirit for men are powerless of their own accord. They're all enslaved to something. Man is enslaved by his own being. For in Romans chapter 8, verse 8, Paul says those who are in the flesh, it's not simply that they will not please God, they cannot please God. But we in Christ have a new being. For Paul continues in verse 9 and says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Therefore, we can say, Even in the midst of all of these things, that all things work for good. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. See, I don't know if I'm called. Do you love God? Not do you love the things of God. Do you love God? Because friend, the only way that you love God for God is if you are called. You don't have to sit around worrying about whether or not you're called or not. Do you love God? Because if you do, you are definitively called of God. And if that's true for you, even on days where you fall out in the hall, you have never had a bad day. We are called according to His purpose. He doesn't call us arbitrarily. There is something in the mind and the heart of God that He is intending to accomplish. Something on which the destiny of the ages turns. For salvation belongs to the Lord. So then, Paul says in Romans 9.16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For as Jesus Christ looked at His apostles and said, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Man, if Christ wasn't going to be our propitiation, if He wasn't going to become our righteousness, that would be the most terrifying statement in all of existence. But the good news of the Gospel is that we have a God whose mercy and compassion are not opposed to His justice, but instead His mercy and compassion are part and partial to His justice, so that if mercy and compassion does not exist, it is not the justice of God. Or God will not be accused. Instead, He will be glorified. He'll be glorified for His wrath, and He'll be glorified for His mercy. For concerning the glory of God and salvation, Paul's heart breaks for the lost. He absolutely weeps over the plight of so many of his brothers according to the flesh for lacking the intimacy of salvation, but instead replacing it with something they called law. 
a religious system that they established. They think they have something that they don't. God's glory is not found in man's religion. God's glory is found in the word of faith. Not the word of faith that is junk theology of the popular period. but The word of faith that is spoken of here. A word that Paul said is near you. Is in your heart and in your mouth. For if you confess with your mouth. And believe in your heart, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, is set right before God. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Romans chapter 10.13 says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And because of that truth, Because God is faithful to fulfill what He promised, we are bold in our evangelism. We speak strongly of the gospel of Christ. Oh, we understand the difference between means and cause. We're all big kids here. We get the difference between those two things. We understand that God ordains all sorts of means for all sorts of stuff that He is doing, but at the end of the day, He is always the cause. We are the means by which His gospel is proclaimed, but Christ is the cause by which salvation comes. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Will all believe? No. Faith comes through hearing. And hearing not through the word of the preacher, but hearing through the word of Christ. Friends, for us, success in the gospel ministry is not necessarily people accepting the good news, though, man. We pray that they do. Success is the faithful proclamation of the gospel. That is success. It's what the prophets before us did. It's what the apostles before us did. It's what the saints that God sent before us did. It's what we do and what His saints will continue to do faithfully until the day of His coming. We are confident in the faithfulness of God to leave the effect up to Him. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. A faithful Christ. He has not abandoned his own. And they are his body. They are his bride. They are children of the Father, adopted through him. He doesn't abandon his own. He doesn't abandon us, and he certainly does not abandon his people, Israel. Instead, today, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Until the fullness of Gentiles like me and you have been grafted in. The result is that the Gentile church better understand how to suffer for the glory 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that suffering, be willing to endure to the end in order that we may be those that provoke Israel to jealousy on the day that they look on the one whom they pierce so that Jew and the Gentiles that has been grafted into their promise may together be saved. For Paul says in Romans 11 that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Church, we have to be the body that provokes to jealousy. Lest the very vine into which we are grafted be cut off. We have to be the living sacrifice. And in order to be that, we have to have the realization that the miracle that God is doing in salvation is not simply moving you from one designation of being unsaved to a new designation of being saved, but instead, the miracle that God is doing in salvation is you. It is me. It is people. It is a bride. It is children for His own name. The miracle that God is doing is sentient, living beings that are alive in a way that the natural man has never been alive. That think in a way that the natural man has never thought. That feel in a way and have passion in a way. And literally what Paul says here in chapter 12, sizzle in a way that the natural man has never thought, felt, been passionate, or sizzled. This is the new creation. i tell you what's wrong with so much of the church today. is we ourselves have all too often formulated a religion. We don't call it law like the Jews of Paul's time did. We call it Christianity. But we have formulated a thing that's religion that has all sorts of steps and things that must be done, but doesn't actually begin with the new life where God speaks something to exist that did not previously exist. And because of that, people are discouraged and downtrodden because they're out there trying to live a life that they have absolutely no power to actually live. And it just eats them. Just eats them alive. Because you're asking someone that's dead to do the things of the living. And it's just like running through a wood chipper. You are the miracle that God is doing. Aware, alive, feeling, desiring, thinking the things of the kingdom. In God's perfect design, He makes every single one unique. Oh, there's a lot of commonality, man. We're all born of the blood. We're all born of the Spirit. But every single one in God's perfect design is unique. We are not all the same. Instead, we are perfectly equipped for the role that we were destined for. So, man, 
The grass is not greener on the other side, friends. Fulfill your role. Be what God called you and created you to be. The kingdom needs you to be that. Your church needs you to be that. Let love be genuine. Literally, Paul says, do not pretend. It's got to be agape love. It's the only one that will work. This love that comes with great intention of will to desire and to do the best for those who are loved. Phileo won't be enough. Hey, it's great, but it won't be enough. Man, the warm fuzzy won't cause you to pick up your cross. It's too fickle. It's too flighty. Man, there's mornings that I wake up and by golly, I got lots of phileo. And there's mornings when I wake up and I ain't got much. But intention of the will that desires the best good for the beloved is the kind of love that will allow Christ to hang on a cross and cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just keep on keeping on, even though in a moment he could call down 10,000 angels to his rescue. Agape. To your God to your brothers, to your sisters, even for your enemy, he says. Man, this is radical new life, friends. Because I don't know about you, but I do know me. And love for my enemy is not something that's coming from me. (laughs) Say, how can I do that, man? You know, and as as you progress in life, things get more complicated. You know, when it's just you, you can sort of kind of wrap your mind around that. Sort of kind of. Love your enemy. They're going to harm you and you need to love them, feed them, water them, do the stuff. Agape love, intention of the will for their best good. In doing so, Proclaim the gospel, heap coals on their heads, what Paul says. How can you do that? Man, as, as time progresses, all of a sudden, now it's not just me, now it's my wife. The stakes got higher. It's one thing if, if loving my enemy may allow my enemy to harm me. What if they harm her? The stakes are higher for you. You got baby's first day at church this morning. Praise the Lord, man. Awesome stuff. Stakes got higher. We can do it because we are convinced to the bone 
that our God is a God that works all things for good and that He is faithful to His people so that Paul can say with certainty, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Friends, there is a place for vengeance. And let me tell you, God has a heart for His people. And when He comes with the stick, it makes anything that we could ever do look paltry by comparison. The question is, is do we trust Him enough to wait on Him to do it? I would tell you the answer is if we don't, we should. And so starting today... We see Paul, after giving him this this incredible overview of what the gospel is. He says, okay, here's some basic example of what it looks like as the body of Christ is walking in this certainty that having been brought from death to life and therefore knowing the goodness of our God, and what He is capable of. Knowing both His character and His power, what that ought to translate to in the way we maintain ourselves in the midst of this present darkness. Today, beginning today, what it looks like in action. And I'll just tell you guys, this is where we're going to be for the next couple weeks, and what it looks like is hard. That's what it looks like. What else would we expect? It is the manifestation of supernatural life. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, I know I put um, in the bulletin down through 14, but 8 through 14... I I am trying to move quickly in this overview, but 8 through 14 just deserves its own. That's just how it needs to be. Let every person... Well, let's, let's go back to verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Because of this, you also pay taxes. Yay. (laughs) For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Okie dokie.
everything, and I think y'all all know this, but I just want to put it out there, full disclosure. Every single fiber of my natural being says, don't tread on me. In Christ we die. In order that in Christ we may live. Scripture clearly displays that God ordains three pillars of authority in this world. The family, the church, and civil government. And yet... In the midst of these, there is no authority that exists that is not first derived from the authority of God Himself. And so today, Paul is speaking specifically about the authority of civil government. They all fall under this. As a matter of fact, you can enlighten yourself about the nature of authority in any one of the three based off what it says about the other two. There is no authority that comes except from God, Paul says, and this is the case with governance as well. And I would remind you that when Paul is writing this, he is speaking not only to the church in Rome, but to a world who is ruled by Rome, by some of the most violent, vile men who have ever sat as kings over their fellow creatures. Paul says of this authority, that it is both a servant for your good as well as an instrument of wrath. This is not new to the people of God. Oh, several years ago, I can't remember what his name was now. There was one of these uh, um, creation science guys down in Florida Uh, that uh, went to prison for a long time for a whole bunch of tax evasion. And he made the statement that he just didn't think that it was, you know, it it wasn't righteous to be paying taxes to a government that would turn around and use his tax dollars to fund abortion and homosexual agenda stuff and, and, and that sort of thing. I understand the argument. It just doesn't hold fast to the word of God. I mean, Paul's talking specifically here even about paying taxes. And he says, man, you pay taxes to whom taxes are owed. Jesus asked about paying taxes to Caesar, this very idea of do you pay taxes to a government that's going to do all sorts of terrible things with it? He said, whose face is on the coin? Give to Caesar what Caesar's. The thing we have to understand is God has ordained this pillar of authority is both a servant for our good as well as an instrument of wrath. Joseph understood it in Egypt. Not only did he fall under the authority of Pharaoh, a man who thought himself to be the embodiment of God, but he even labored in his service and the service of his government, and in doing so, saved the whole world from famine. Daniel understood it when he labored in much the same manner in Babylon. Christ understood it. Matthew chapter 17, 
verse 24 through 27, where it says, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon, for whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And he said, From others. And Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, do not give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Whether a theocracy like you see operating amongst the Jews in first century Galilee or the republic that you see operating here today, and make no bones about it, friends, we do not live in a democracy. We live in a republic. If I hear one more person on TV bellyaching about the end of democracy, democracy has never existed here. This is a democratic republic. Whether it be the theocracy of the Jews, the rule of the Roman despots, or the republic in which we live today, it is given to us by God, both for a servant for good and an instrument for wrath. The authority comes from God Himself, Paul says. That's why it's here. It's the same kind of authority that, Dad, you have in your home. It's the same kind of authority that the church has over her people. It is authority that comes from God and is given for the very specific good of His kingdom, both in blessing and in wrath. And the authority of all three of these pillars therefore goes exactly as far as God goes. And not one iota further. If you look at the authority of the husband in the family. Ephesians chapter 5, as it it, um, respects his spouse particularly. In Ephesians chapter 5, we'll get to the kids here in a minute. Verse 22, Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Just up the page in verses 18 through 21 Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. If you're going to have Christ-like authority between you and your spouse, that Christ-like authority has to be based, guess what, in Christ. We're submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ because this very thing that is marriage references Christ and the church. You can't do it if you're not doing it in Him. If you're not doing it in Him, all you have is a grotesque caricature of what marriage is actually supposed to be. The same thing is true, mom and dad, in the authoritative relationship that you have as parent to your children. 
Paul will say in chapter 6, Children, obey your parents. How? In the Lord, for this is right. It's true in the church. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's a bold statement, friends. That's a bold statement. Obey is a strong word. It's so strong that most of the leaders that it is speaking of there, myself included, hesitate to quote this verse very often because we inherently know how, just how responsible it makes you. How far does that go? Whether husband and wife, parents and children, the church, it goes exactly as far as the God from whom authority it is derived goes. Which is why in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 through 9, Paul said, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, not some other word. But the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teaching. So obey your leaders and submit to them. How far? Up to the point that they are still speaking to you the word of God and not leading you away into diverse and strange teachings. Wives, submit to your husbands. How far? In so much as he is submitting to Christ, if he asks you to cheat on your taxes, you don't have to do that. Children, obey your parents. How? In the Lord. If they ask you to go shoplifting, you can say no. Otherwise, the pillars of authority stand. Doesn't matter if you agree, if you disagree, if you think it's a bad idea, a poor application, it does not matter. If you are not being asked of something that is beyond the Word of God, then God's authorities stand. As difficult as it is for my flesh to say that. So too is the case with governance. We see it displayed in Acts chapter 4. Now here you got Paul saying, listen, be submissive to the governing authorities. Pay their taxes, even though they're going to use them for stuff that you completely disagree with and is completely contrary to the character of God. They're here for a reason. They're here as a servant of good, and they're here as a servant of wrath. They don't bear the sword in vain. How far does that authority go? As far as God goes. And no further. And so in the book of Acts, in chapter 4, in verse 1, 
It says, as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. There's the faithfulness of God in the gospel, man. There's, there's faith comes through hearing, and hearing comes through the word of Christ, and the gospel's being proclaimed, and people are hearing, and some are rejecting, and some are believing because of the compassion and the mercy of God. And on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a noble sign has been performed through them, is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. And so here you have some men that are detained, And they go willingly. They're detained without charge. And they keep their peace. They're stood up before this council without any representation except for their own. And they submit at every turn. Right up until the authority oversteps their bounds and commands something that God forbid. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, They let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. Notice, notice the attitude of the apostles. They do not deny the authority of the governors over them. 
They simply understand that when you have a conflict of authority between any pillar of authority among men and the authority of God himself from whom it is derived, we always answer to God. Notice they had no delusions about possibly being punished and paying the price for what they knew they must do. That's why Peter looked at him and said, guys, you'll have to decide whether it's right or wrong. And the implication there is we understand that you will act accordingly. But we know what we have to do. We must speak about what we have seen and what we have heard. And because of that speaking, because of that testimony, the apostles to the last man would suffer at the hands of human governance. And yet the suffering was not cause for them to depart from the testimony of the word. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. When you have no fear of the one who is in authority, then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience." Fair enough. What do you do with the situation that we find ourselves in today? Because, as we mentioned, we do not live under an emperor. We don't have a king. We don't have a dictator. We live in a republic. We live in a country who, whose nature, the best that men can engineer it, is supposed to reflect the will and the character of the people. This governance is an, ish, is an instrument for the goodness of God and it is an instrument for the wrath of God. You know, reflecting on this, the first thing you think is, is okay, you know, I've got to be, I've, I've got to submit, I've, I've got to be in subjection, I've got to kind of rewire, you know, the, the thinking of my flesh, it must be brought into subjugation to the new creation that understands that things are the way they are for a reason. God put them there for a reason. If he wanted it to be different at this moment in time, it would be. And that we are not here to build a kingdom on this earth, but for the kingdom that is yet to come. And all of that's true. It's all true. But when you really begin to consider our situation, 
the governance we have, what is required of us by God in submission to that governance, and why the governance is in the position that it's in, it becomes absolutely sickening to me. Because the reality is this. The preamble of our Constitution, which is the really the kind of the, the pragmatic document, you know, we got two, basically. If the if the Declaration of Independence is the is the theory, the philosophy, the theology of governance here, if you will, then the Constitution is the means by which that is implemented. The preamble of the Constitution says, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity, me and you, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. We the people do this. You and I are involved here. This is not just some king that sets on high that got to be king because his dad was king. And we don't have any responsibility in his kingship. This is governance that we own. It is a reflection of us. And the fact that we have such a difficulty submitting to what it is should speak volumes about the us it is reflecting. You know, in a recent survey by Gallup, and look, look, which ought to tell you these numbers are as biased as they can be. In a recent survey by Gallup, most Americans say that they believe, let's talk about governance, culture, where we're at right now. What, what we have on the radar that we are going to be asked to submit to. Most Americans believe that homosexual and transgender individuals represent 25% of the population. If you watch sitcoms on TV, that's probably a pretty accurate representation. You see a cast of four, there's always one represented there somewhere. So most, most Americans believe it's about 25%. There's a big push, both by culture and government, to make this stuff as mainstream as it can be, to, to press upon us these things that they're asking us to, to submit to. You know what the reality is? And like I said, this is Gallup, so they want the numbers to be as high as they can get. So take these with a grain of salt. They're probably not actually this high. The reality is is that homosexuality makes up 4.5% of the population and transgenderism makes up 0.6. But you would think it was just everywhere. Our culture and our government is being overrun with it. And it's being overrun with it because the other 95.5% of us 
of which over 60% claim to be Christians are okay with it being overrun with it. Otherwise, it would be different. Government exists as the servant of God for your good. It exists as the servant of God for wrath. Unlike so many people that have come before us, when we stand before God and answer, we're going to have to answer for the fact that we allowed to exist something that became the instrument of wrath because as a people, wrath was what we had coming. If the Constitution works right, it's a mirror. And I'm fearful, guys, that it's really polished pretty well. I wish I could tell you something different, but I don't believe it. Man, we, you know, it's easy to listen to, to conservative radio and get all fired up and they've hijacked the country and this, that, and the other. Friends, the only way to hijack this country is to hijack the hearts and the minds of its people. You go, man, that's a bummer. I know, I told you, when you got elders' wives falling out on you, this isn't the sermon you want to preach. What do we do about that? What do we do about that? I can tell you what we don't do. Let me tell you guys, I'll just say it. The Republican Party is just as godless as the Democratic Party. It's just a different flavor. The hope won't be found in parties. It won't be found in political action committees. It's not in the moral majority. It's not in yard signs. It's, it's not in debates. It's not in any of that. The answer is Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetous, which is idolatry. On the account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Or as Paul will say next week in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor, you shall agape your neighbor, you shall with great intention do the best good for your neighbor, whether you feel like it or not. 
And if you don't, then you'll go home and you'll beg the Holy Spirit to sanctify you so that you will feel like it because you should. I am preaching to me. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not wrong, does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleeping. The church needs to figure out the reason they're having to submit to a government that they don't want to submit to, that is godless in so many ways, is because they have been asleep and allowed it. That's why. You know the time. The hours come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness nor sexual immorality and sensuality nor in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You want to know what the answer is? The answer is go be the new creation. That's the answer. Be it in the voting booth? Absolutely. And at the grocery store? (laughs) And at the office? And at the ball game? And at the DMV? And every single other thing we do. There's no authority that doesn't come from God. It exists because of Him. He's given us a very particular, unique, opportunity in America to really be able to look at what's going on with government and see ourselves I pray that it becomes the impetus man Government leads to so much evil. Wouldn't it be great if it could lead, if it could be a catalyst for sanctification? This is a republic, friends. You want it to change? Change. Man, we've got to see people come to Christ. And we've got to see Christians being conformed to Christ. That's the only hope we've got. Because we are required to submit to it. And if it gets corrupt to the point that it demands of us things that God forbids, 
we will be required to face the consequences of being faithful to God. My prayer is that in whichever way that goes, God will find us to be faithful. And friends, Scripture says that if if you're not faithful in the small things, you won't be faithful in the big things. So I'm going to take you right back to the introduction to the sermon now and covering all this stuff that Paul talked about up to the end of chapter 12. And say, man, if you're not faithful to Christ first, then you will never be faithful to Christ last. And the gospel is clear. He is merciful. He is compassionate. And all who call on the name of the Lord are saved. Come to Christ. You will find him to be faithful. Let's pray.